0: Thank you, Tina. And Tracy, man, I I echo that. That that was a, a fantastic song. Um, fits right in with today's message too. We didn't plan that, did we? <laughs> um. All right. Well, if you if you have a Bible and you haven't already, turn to uh, John chapter three. I'm going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I promise, I won't keep you here till two o'clock. And and I I say that honestly because, you know, my tendency is to dive in into the nitty-gritty of specific verses, and that's 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 my wheelhouse where I like to camp out. But this chapter is is one I think it's familiar to most folks that grew up you know within the church. It's a story we've heard often, Um, but more specifically, it fits together as a whole. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus, you know, explains to him the new birth. Um, that it is radical. And I've titled this message, You Must Be Born Again, the the Radical Notion of a New Birth, because it is radical. Um, And then the last half of this story is Jesus providing a series of arguments of why it is necessary. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to answer two questions. One, what does it mean to be born again? And two, why is the radical birth new? Uh, why is the radical new birth necessary? Why, why is it? Why is it necessary that this must take place? Because when we look at Nicodemus, he is astonished. He's amazed, and Jesus says, you, sh- "You shouldn't be amazed." And so he makes arguments towards the end of the chapter for why. And I have six becauses. Becauses are reasons why. So I have six points for why it's necessary. All right, so that's that's the direction that we're we're going. So as as you see that kind of outline, the bulk of the text we'll look at, or at least you know the weight of it, was going to be it's going to be back ended on the text. I'm not going to deal a lot with the specific details of the narrative. So if you have questions about some of those things, what's the water? What's the, you know, what does this mean? What's the uh, ascended, descended? Come to me afterwards. You know, we can talk about it. But I don't want to get bogged down in that. Because I want us, because Jesus is focusing on the new birth. That's what he's aiming for. So that's where I want to go this morning. Um, this, this text also, just kind of as a footnote, has particular, um, um, well maybe nostalgia is not the best word for me, but it, it resonates with me because the very first time I was ever asked to lead a Bible study was my freshman year in college at the Baptist Collegiate Ministries, and I was given the task of of leading a Bible study on this text no training, nothing, whatever, you know, the, the, the new leader of that Baptist Collegiate Ministries who was br- he was brand new to that group, he handed me, you know, the, the, the date and said, here, you, you know, you lead this. Okay, I'm a freshman in college. and All right, botched it. And I, I'm not, so, I mean, I botched it, you know. I spoke a lot, said a lot of words, and I could just look at people just they there going, huh? And I'm just sitting there going, Lord, help me get through this because I don't want the eyes of people to be on me I walked away from that thing going, I botched this thing. So I'll pray this morning, Lord, help me to do better this time. Um, and that's an honest prayer I've prayed for this. Lord help bring help 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 bring clarity to to this message because this is Christianity one oh one. What's the new birth? What does it mean? And the reason I asked that first question, what does it mean to be born again is because I, I feel like and I think that's not phenomenological language for us that doesn't astonish us in our you know, comfortable Christian subculture. I, you know that that we've taken the concept of a new birth and we've normalized it. That that in in the culture at large, that's sort of you know we use that language. We can use that language, and and so we've sort of devalued the idea of a of a new birth, um, born again Christian. You know, Christianity. You talk to people that you work with. You know, even maybe this is some of your own concepts. What does it mean to be born again? No, well I had that was a Christian experience. I had some sort of a some sort of an experience, a spiritual experience, and I was born again. I prayed a prayer. I did it when I was 7, I did it when I was 10, I did it when I was 18, youth camp. I've done that. I've been I've been I've been born again. It has that type of an of an idea. I've got to have some sort of an emotional experience. Or I I, I it, it translates into a moment of moral clarity, sort of this moment in life where I had this moral clarity about what's good, what's bad. And and Jesus helped me see, well, this is good and I should do good. And so my not? So born again now translates into, well, I'm going to try and choose good over bad. And that's what born again means. And Jesus is sort of the spiritual guide that I have. And what happens is, and if you talk to people, this is where this, this vague notion of born again, translates into our lives is it begins to be mixed with secularism and uh, I- and Eastern religions that are popular and Jesus sort of just becomes another way and and people will adopt the language of born-again Christianity but when you talk to them and you press them and you a- and you ask them tell me your story tell me what is what does it mean what does this mean y- you see that there's a very drastic Distinction, or there's a dichotomy between what does Jesus mean when he says born again and what does this person mean? And so I want us to answer that question specifically let Jesus show us from his conversation with Nicodemus what does it mean to be born again and then turn that around and ask ourselves one, have I been born again? Am I born again? Because Jesus says no one sees the kingdom of God no one enters into the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So that's that's critical for us. I, I, being able to answer that with confidence. And you'll find that if you, that, that confidence r- does not rest on yourself. to so asking that question, but then also asking ourselves when we talk to people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, and we have conversations and we hear the l- biblical language coming up to be able to discern, if, is this a fellow believer in Christ or is this a lost person? And that's not so that we can bring the gavel of judgment down, but so that we can be conduits of the gospel to them. Because so often we hear, somebody will use the language, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Okay, you know, and all of a sudden, categorically, they're, in, they're different. Well, I don't need to talk to them about the gospel. But then our experience with them, we find that their life pattern and the things that they treasure are in direct opposition to the gospel. And there's a, there's a, there's a disconnect. And we're, we're, we're shocked. We're like, well, you said you're a Christian, but this is the way you live your life. Part of that resonates in the fact that we really don't have a good understanding of what it means to be born again, and we've probably not really asked them. We've probably not really asked them and, and ask what does that mean for you? So I want to help you in, in that regard of when you're listening to people tell their stories, what do you listen for that, that says this person's born again? because people can use the language of scripture all that they want but when you hear about the focus of the story you 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 really can dis- you can discern is this person born again as far as I can tell no or or is this a is this a false gospel is this a false gospel and the same is true for ourselves are you believing a false gospel or are you bring believing the true gospel because there are plenty of false gospels out there in our culture so and let me kind of let me split this in half if I can. For you younger students and younger adults, this is crucial because there are false gospels that are so easy to follow. And so the question of am I born again, this is, you've got to ask these questions. Not that I have a religious experience multiple times. Not, you know, well, I, I, I see the gospel because my parents are Christians. Or because I have friends that are Christians. No, am I born again? Am I, am I born again in this sense? And then for older uh, adults who've had an experience maybe of of longer exposure to Christianity, am I really born again or am I full of myself? Okay, so we want to look at that. All right, so let's go with the context of uh, of this born again. Nicodemus comes to Nicodemus comes to Jesus he comes at night he's a Pharisee okay he's a smart dude let's let's say that he's a smart dude he's he's intelligent he has he full exposure to the law he knows the narrative of the Old Testament he knows what's there and he's probably already been exposed to Jesus in some capacity remember when Jesus did miracles he did miracles but he also taught and when in the other gospels you see these things woven together that the miracles and the teaching of Jesus went together to give an overall picture of who Jesus was and what he was coming to do. Okay, And so Nicodemus has been exposed to both of these and he's coming to Jesus at night under the cloak of darkness because he has questions. Who is this God-man? Who is this man who can do these things and teaches with, as Matthew says, at the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, with such authority. Who is this man? Now, Jesus already knows this. And we're, we're told this because in the verses just before chapter 3, it says that Jesus was doing many signs. He was doing many signs. People were marveling at these signs. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this sets up the stage for really the next two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4. Jesus knows, in his omniscience, in his deity, he knows what's in the heart of man. And I'll give you a, t- you know, a, a um, spoiler alert, it's not good. Kay? He knows that, and so he's not entrusting himself to people seeing these wonders and being drawn to him. And so that sets us up for Nicodemus. So Nicodemus comes under the cloak of darkness, and he has questions for Jesus. And, and those questions are sincere. Because when Jesus deals with a false believer, and by believer I mean somebody who, who's not humbly coming before him. When he deals with somebody who, uh, whose heart is postured in a wrong position, he deals with him much more sternly than he deals with Nicodemus. And he's dealing with Nicodemus gently, even though he chastises him. He kind of lays a whip on him a couple times, you know, and rightly so. He deals with him gently, and he feeds him. He feeds him, and he answers his questions. And we see na- later in the, in, in the Gospels, Nicodemus continues following Jesus. Um, but that's for, that's for later. So Nicodemus comes um, under the cloak of darkness, and he, he says to Jesus, you know, uh, he says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And it's kind of like Jesus, he, he, he camps out on that teacher word. and it, He doesn't say this, so allow me some liberty, but it's almost like he says, "Now well, let me teach you something. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can be born again, no, no one, uh, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think that Nicodemus is just totally in the dark here. I, I think when he asked the question, or when he says, how can a man be born when he's old? I think he's understanding that Jesus is speaking in metaphorical language here. That, that this doesn't just totally blindside him. And I say that because if he's been exposed to the teachings of Jesus and he's been exposed to the, uh, um, to the, to the miracles, that, that metaphorical language is part of Jesus' teaching all throughout the scriptures. You no. Know. Now, he doesn't get it. Let me just say that. If you're just bent on, well, no, he just, he's asking it direct. Uh, okay, all right, you know, we'll, we'll agree to disagree there. But at the end of it, he doesn't get it, and he's asking for more clarity. But the way Jesus gives him more clarity, if he doesn't get it completely, it just further muddies the water. And, and so he's, he's, Jesus is saying, one must be born again uh, if he's to see the kingdom of God. And, and, and Nicodemus goes, how does that happen? Has it happened? remember the Pharisees were expecting the Messiah to come and to bring about an earthly kingdom under which they would be be blessed, be nourished, and and, and sort of would be um it would they boast in their nationality you know that God was going was going to send the Messiah he's going to be a kingly victor, free them from Roman oppression you know and they're following the law, therefore that gives them grounds for being a part of that kingdom. That's what they're boasting in. That's what the Pharisees were boasting in. Now Nicodemus comes as a curious man that Jesus is speaking about something a little different than what we're expecting. Now obviously the Pharisees are upset about this. Nicodemus comes under the cloak of darkness because he doesn't want to be exposed, doesn't want anybody to see him, but he's curious. And so Jesus lays this out, this radical notion that you cannot enter this kingdom of God that you're expecting unless you're born again. And Nicodemus goes, How, how's it happen? How, how's that happen? And Jesus answers him and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, born, one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot that can be said here, but let me point us back to Ezekiel chapter 36. So I think this is where Jesus is is pointing to. okay. Because you, you, you can make, you make the argument, well, he's talking about baptismal regeneration here with water. There, you know, here's, an, here's a text that you have to be baptized in order to be born again and saved. Well, if that's the case, you have a really hard time following that argument through the rest of the chapter. Because Jesus leaves this concept of water. He does. He goes straight to the Spirit. Well, if you say, well, this is you know, a, a separate baptism of the Spirit. Well, you still have a hard time arguing that from what follows. Okay, so I'm going to leave those to your own curiosity, your own digging. That's not the direction he goes. Let me point us back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel uh, 36, starting in in, in verse 24. So Ezekiel prophesying, and God is saying to them, I'm going to do something phenomenal with you. I'm going to vindicate my own holy name because you've profaned it amongst the nations. The important thing here is God says, I'm going to do something in you and through you so that the nations will see that I'm God. Okay, so who's getting the glory here? Israel's not getting the glory. God's getting the glory. Now, how's he going to do it? Here's what he says. He says, for I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness from all your idols now, is that real water no clearly it's not real water he's saying your hearts are darkened they're full of idolatry you've got to be cleaned the darkness that's inside you it's got to be cleaned out And he goes on, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my commandments. If you go over to uh, Jeremiah and look at the promise of the new covenant, parallels it, parallels it. I will put my spirit within you. Okay, so what is he saying? In order for the nations to see that I'm worthy, that I'm glorious, I'm going to clean your heart. I'm gonna, there's a cleansing that's going to happen. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. Okay, so that's the promise. And Jesus, pointing back to this, said you've got to be born again. What does born again look like? It's, it's being cleansed and put my spirit within you. An excellent New Testament just summary of this, Titus 3, 5. Titus writes and he says, he saved us. Now look, this is Titus looking back on the cross. Okay, so here's, here's, uh, here's Ezekiel. He's looking forward. Here's Titus. He's looking back. Okay, sort of the same explanation from different points in history. Titus says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of, regeneration, uh, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So you see that? The washing and the cleansing. Not by these cisterns that we would put washing in and we're going to go wash our hands and cleanse ourselves there. Jesus is saying, that's not any good. No, you've got to have an alien washing, an alien cleansing. And what else does he say? He goes on and he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And, of course, Nicodemus is sitting here and his jaw is dropping. It's, it, it's dawning on him. You notice what's not in any of that explanation? None of your religious good deeds. Nothing about your good works. Nothing about your moral behavior. It, and this would have been going through his mind. I'm doing all of these things and I'm banking on these things. as getting me into the into the presence of God I've got a pedigree here born in Israel I'm following the law I'm a teacher of the law and what you're telling me is this is this is bunk this does nothing for me I've got to be born again Jesus is emphasizing this is a work of God you notice in the Ezekiel passage who is the who, who is the actor in that who does the work it's God. God says, I'm, I'm going to wash you with clean water. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And, and Jesus is saying, this, the, in order for you to get into God's kingdom, this is a work that God has to do in you. Of course, Nicodemus' mouth is dropping. He's just, it's blowing his mind. And Jesus says, don't be amazed. Did I tell you you must be born again? Wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus, you don't have control over that. This is a work that God does. Nothing about your good efforts in there. And it amazes Jesus. And, and I mean, it amazes Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, how, how can these things be? It it, it reminds me of later in, a, uh, in one of the other Gospels when Jesus is speaking to the... Um, uh, he's speaking to the rich young ruler and he tells him the rich young ruler comes to him and says, How how do I get into heaven? You know, how do I receive eternal life? And he says, Go sell all that you or keep the law, you know, do it." and the, the man says, Yes, I've kept all the law. Jesus points to the first commandment, you know, basically you've committed idolatry because you love your stuff. And he points to it in his heart and he touches him in his heart, basically, and says, Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the man leaves and he's saddened because he had a lot of wealth. And he treasured the wealth more than he treasured Christ. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, It's harder for the rich for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a man to, than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Do you remember what the response of the disciples was? Who then can be saved? Who who then can be saved? It's a, it's a question of valuing. We treasure stuff more than Jesus. I mean, that was the that was the lesson of it. And Nicodemus is seeing this is a work of God that God has to do. And I can't make it happen myself. None of my religious efforts and good works can get me there. And he's, he's amazed. How's, how can that be? Who then can be saved? And Jesus gives a phenomenal explanation. I'm going to move down to I'm going to move down to verse 14 and 15. Okay, there's some, more, there's some more in there. You know, where Jesus highlights his deity. You know, he's, he's the only one that's, that's ascended, you know, that's from heaven. The, I'm telling you, you know, your earthly things, you don't understand it, you know, and, I'm, and how, I, how would you s- understand if I told you heavenly things? The broader picture of what God's doing in his larger narrative. you know, we're just talking about your own heart, Nicodemus. And yet he goes on to spiritual things. Here's what he says in verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus said, here's a picture of the new birth. And he points Nicodemus back to a story in Numbers chapter 21. I won't read it, but I'll summarize it. The Israelites were in the wilderness. They'd been grumbling and complaining about the food and the heat and, you know, life's just miserable. We were better off back in Egypt. And God hears their grumbling and their complaining and a, a, a pushback against his sovereignty. He's bringing them into a good land, right? I mean, he's got a good plan. He's carrying them through their suffering and they're grumbling and complaining. We know better than you, God, what's best for us. And God sends fiery serpents, snakes, poisonous snakes amongst the people and the people get bitten and they begin to die and they go to Moses and they're, they're crying out and they're saying we, we've sinned you know, we've, we've grumbled and complained against God do something Moses intercedes for the people God tells Moses says Moses I want you to take, take and fashion a serpent from bronze put it on a stick and stick it up in the middle of the camp and tell the people that and if anyone's bitten by a snake, go, go and look at the serpent, and they'll be healed. <laughs> and the story ends right there, you know, isn't it great? So what, what, what was that for? You ever read stories in the Old Testament, you're like, why is that there? This is great, because this is a point where Jesus points back, and he goes, that's, that's me. This is the reason for that. Look at this. The people had sinned, and the evidence of their sin, they'd been bitten by a snake, been bitten by a snake and the the poison cursed through their veins. And their, their, their saving grace was to look upon the object of their very sin. And Jesus says, in that same way, the only way for those people to be saved, to be healed, was that they would look upon that snake in the wilderness. So the Son of Man will become sin. A favorite verses in the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians five twenty one. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became sin and was raised on a cross. Look at the parallel of that. In verse 3, Jesus says, no, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Verse 14 and 15. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. You see that? Seeing the kingdom of God is parallel with believing in Jesus. Okay, you have to see Jesus lifted up on a cross in order in order to enter the kingdom of God. So so how does the how does that new birth happen? What is it? It's God cleansing us and giving us of His Spirit. And that's a work that God does. But there is a part that we partake in, that we do. It's looking to Jesus. There's no value in looking, right? If I say, hey, everybody, look out that window, there's a, there's a hawk. All you're doing is looking. That's not a work that has a an intrinsic value upon which you can boast. Right? There's, There's no religious effort, no moral effort in that. It's looking. It's simply looking. Two things had to happen for those folks in the wilderness in order for them to be saved from death to life. One, they had to acknowledge that they'd been bitten. You know? I mean to go to that serpent and acknowledge I've been bitten by a snake and look at the snake to believe that they believing that they were healed. Right. Why else would you go? Why else would you go and look unless you'd been bitten and you needed to be healed? Incidentally, that's scandalous and radical for the very Son of God in his purity and in his character to compare himself to a snake. The very object and imagery of defiling sin. And, and yet Jesus says, here's the radical nature of the, of the new birth. Is This is what it takes in order for you to be redeemed. In order for you to have life. Nicodemus is sitting there thinking, well, I just need a boost. And this is what a lot of people, th- when they think of the new birth, they think, well, I just got to have a moral boost. There's enough goodness in me that I just need to choose right from wrong. I need to choose better from worse. And Jesus sort of gives me that boost. Jesus says, no, you're dead in your sins. You've been bitten by the curse of sin and you need to look upon me so that I can take that sin away from you. Now, that's all well and good for Nicodemus because Nicodemus lives in a time when he's going to be able to physically see Jesus raised up on a cross. What does that do for us? And we say, well, you've got to see Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Well, you've got to see Jesus. Well, that's great, but I'm living 2,000 plus years past when Jesus died on a cross, and that happened at one point in history. I can read about it. You know, I can be told about it, but I can't actually physically see it. So, and and that's that's great because the new testament continues on after the gospel right the the apostles wrote later preaching the gospel pointing back to jesus on the cross so let me give you two texts about this and and i'll make this statement and i'll argue it from the two texts seeing jesus and that's the emphasis what's my part in this new birth it's a work that god's got to do but i've got to see jesus what does, that, what does that look like? That's, what, that's, the, that's the instruction from Jesus in the verse 14 and 15. You've got to believe in him. Seeing is believing in a sense there. You've got to believe in him. Well, how do I do that? Seeing Jesus and believing in him happens through hearing the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Christianity 101, right? So let me let me go here for this. 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Peter's highlighting here the precious value of the blood that bought us and the effect of that work of uh, of God on us. Namely, that that we should bear the fruit of brotherly love amongst ourselves. Okay, that's what he's going for in in this section. That's what he's after. It says in verse 22, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart for you've been born again there's our born again language you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable stop right there that that imperishable aspect of this seed parallels the imperishable and uh, precious value of the blood of jesus so the sovereign work of God in sending the Son to die on the cross and purchase us with His blood. In the song we sang earlier, the precious blood that washed us. He's now talking about a, uh, uh, an imperishable seed. Okay? An imperishable planting, if you will. Now what is that? Here's the question. What then is that? Peter goes on. He said that is through the living and enduring word of God. And then skip down to verse 25. In the end of 25, he says, and this is the word which was preached to you. This is the word that was preached to you. So how does, the, in Peter's mind, how does the new birth happen? It happens because the shed blood of Christ on the cross paid the, uh, the penalty for your sins. And you believe in that through hearing the preached word and internalizing it. Not just intellectually acknowledging it. I've, I've heard many people say, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, just like they believe that, that, uh, that China exists. It's an intellectual thing. But it's not been internalized. It's not been absorbed. There's no washing there. and We'll, we'll touch on that here in a minute. But I want you to see that seeing Christ lifted up on the cross and believing in him comes through hearing that proclaimed word. Now that's here on Sunday mornings through the exposition and preaching of the scripture. But that also happens as we preach the gospel to one another. Now as well. As the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake your assembling together as is the habit of some. And that's, the, the gr- that's gathering and hearing the preached word. But also encourage one another day after day. What do you encourage one another with? Hey, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. No, no, it's with the gospel, reminding one another of the truths of the gospel, preaching the gospel to each other. So it begins with the proclamation of the gospel from the the preachers who who I pray as Al and I pray regularly. Lord, help me to be faithful in presenting Your Word, preaching it on Sundays, and then taking. Taking that and in your own studies of the Scripture and going to the Word and and the Lord showing you more and more of Himself and His character and what He values and that becoming now your value and you valuing what He values, then turning around and, and sharing that and encouraging one another through that. Whether that's another brother or sister in Christ or whether that's a lost person who doesn't see Jesus or maybe has a false perspective of Jesus. I'm just trying to do harder, just trying to be better. sharing the gospel with them one more james 1 and verse 21 i'm pointing to these two others because i want you to see that there's a there's a continuity between the different human authors in scripture you have john you have peter and you have james we could go to others too but i want you to see that across the board they all understood the new birth in that same sense James 1, and 21. In the exercise of His will, this is the Father, and in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. Does that sound new birth to you, right? Who, who, Everybody in here was born. Who brought you forth? You had a mother who brought you forth, right? The, the, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. How did He do it? By the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's a new birth that's happening there. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You see the parallel there? That God does this work in the heart of a person, opening their eyes to the depths of their sin, how it's an offense to God, and that he's good and holy in his mercy on the cross and his love, and the heart changes. There's a repentance that happens, and repentance is, this is what I used to treasure, and God's opened my eyes to it, and now I treasure this. John Piper gives a, fa- a fantastic example of this. I'll credit him with, with it, and I'll, I'll use it because I think it's great, and I got nothing better. No. But it, Piper explains this. Here's what the new birth looks like. Okay, Imagine you're in a dark room, and there's a little bit of light glimmering kind of here and there. And you're looking along the floor, and there's these little silvery kind of black, shiny stones. And they, they, they're appealing to you. They look great. And you start going along, and you're picking these up, and you're putting them in your pocket. Feeling the shiny stones, picking them up, putting them in your pocket. These are fantastic. Man, I am going to use these for something. This is great. This is great. This is great. This is great. And all of a sudden, somebody turns a light on, and you realize that what you have been picking up are cockroaches. give me the pocket out. I don't want that junk. That's nasty. This is what the new birth does. Is that God shines the light into our hearts. This is what you've been treasuring. This is what you've been loving. And and let me just say this in our culture, we we ourselves are what we are loving. Autonomy being the source of moral right and wrong and and, and the the autonomous Procession of our own lives—that's what we treasure most. I think every every age, every every few decades, whatever, kind of has its own idol, in a sense. This is where we are right now. Now, this is where we are right. This is where God takes sort of the side sidecar seat, you know, and He's sitting there encouraging you, man. That's you know, do great, do great. You're doing good, you know. I'm for I'm for you making much of yourself. This is the false gospel that we oftentimes fall into. And that's not the case. God gets the glory for it because he does the work. And he shows us that what we've been treasuring isn't worth treasuring. It's, it's an offense to him. And we begin to treasure what he treasures. Because we hear the preached word. We see it. We read it. And God opens our eyes to it. And we, and we value it. And our eyes are open to the fact that what we previously valued was not of value. And that's, the, that's what happens in the new birth. We see Jesus through the hearing of the gospel. And our eyes are opened. And it's a work that God does. So, last few minutes. I promise it'll be a few minutes. Why is the new birth necessary? Why is it radical? Because as you go through the last section of the chapter, Jesus makes these arguments. He uses the word for. Because he's making grounds upon why this is a radical, essential thing that has to happen. Because remember, Nicodemus is astonished. Why? That's... that's. How does that happen? How can these things be? And Jesus makes these arguments. So I'll I'll, I'll point out six of them. I'll point out six. I won't dive into them deeply. I'll leave that for for your your own studying. Um... But here, here are six that I pulled out of this. Why is the new birth necessary? Why is this? Ra- why is it radical? Why is it necessary? Number one, because it exalts God's love. Verse 16, probably the f- most favorite verse in in in, uh, in in Christianity, at least modern Christianity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see that? How does, a, how does somebody get eternal life? G- nobody gets eternal life by default. I just spoiled it for the next one, for number two. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. G- God, it is God's love that brings about saving. That, that the new birth highlights God's love. God isn't some cruel dictator up there just going, you're saved, 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 you're saved and I hate all the rest of you. It is his love that for, for his creation, for that which he's created in his own image that says, I'm not going to just wipe everything clean and start over. I'm going to redeem them by sending my son. We love because he first loved us. When we were yet sinners, God loved us. The gospel exalts his love and the new birth is necessary because it demonstrates His love and because His love for us necessitates it. Number two, because eternal condemnation is the default position for everyone. So many times in false Christianity, there's the belief that, well, my faith is building blocks, basically, and if there are more good things over here than over there, God will accept me. They've got to balance the scales with good things and bad things. You know, I th- there, there's the assumption that I start off sort of at this, you know, this neutral ground, and I've got to build up. In this whole section here, Jesus I- is, the presupposition is, you're condemned already. Isn't that what he says? And I don't have the ES, yeah, thank you, Nathan. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The default position is that you've inherited the sin nature from Adam. You've inherited that. That's your nature. Now, you're not as bad as you could be. Not everybody in here is an axe murderer. I hope nobody is, okay? But we're all prone to lying. We're we're all prone to self-aggrandizement. We're all prone to, and you can run through the list, Right? We're all prone to looking at someone who, of the opposite sex not as, a fe- not as a brother and sister in Christ created in the image of God or someone who is a potential brother and sister in Christ, a fellow image bearer of God and honoring them in our actions and our v- looking at them in our thinking but to make them an object of our own self-pleasure. Do you see that? We're condemned already because of our sins. The new birth is necessary because condemnation is our default. Number three, because a phenomenal offense requires the highest payment. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice in the previous verses, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Here he says, he refers to himself as the only begotten son of God. Only one, highest value. The phenomenal offense of sin requires the highest payment. Requires the the highest payment. Notice, no sincerity of religion, no matter how sincere you are or a person is, that's not going to get a person into heaven. Say, well, this person's just very sincere. It doesn't matter. The people in the wilderness, it doesn't matter how sincere they were about wanting to be healed. If they did not look upon the bronze serpent, they would die. This is the message of the gospel. It's exclusive claims to salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone. There's only one name under heaven by which we may be saved. Phenomenal offense requires the highest payment. Number four. Because behavior modification isn't enough. The seed of our affection must change. This is where we get into the real, I mean, if you're diving in, this is where we're, we're zeroing in on the key issue. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Notice what he said. The judgment's not going to be a comparison of, well, let's get out here and compare your good deeds against your bad deeds. A lot of people think that way. If, if they think that judgment is actually going to happen. The movement of secular culture now is away from, judgment kind of became annihilation, and now it's moving to, well, there's no judgment at all. But Scripture speaks of it. The, the judgment there isn't going to be, well, let's see, what's your good deeds, what's your bad deeds? Let's kind of balance those out. It's going to be a simple question of what did you love most and how did your daily actions display it? As so we'll say, well, will we love Jesus most. Okay, fair enough. How did your, your daily actions show what you love most? Are you telling the truth? Are you telling a lie? Do you, do you see that? That's what he says. The judgment is light came into the world and men loved the darkness more than the light. See, there's no place in heaven for self aggrandizement. There's no place in heaven for for treasures of careers that make much of us. No place in, in heaven for the pursuit of leisures and downtime as our highest goal. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? I get caught in that too. It's easy. Christ takes the preeminence. And this isn't just behavior modification, right? The, the, uh, the, the false gospel would say, well, you just, you just choose something better. You just change your behavior. But Jesus points to our hearts. He says, the judgment happens based off what you love. And left unto ourselves, we love the darkness. We don't, we don't love the light. Number five. Because it's the only remedy for shame. Verse twenty: For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What is that? That's that's shame. And shame, at its core, is I'm not what I should be. I'm n- I'm not what I should be. What's the solution to that? I mean, that the I not I'm not what I should be isn't just well I need to change my behavior. It's it's an identity. How do I... I identify myself with this. And anything else other than Christ there's, there's no foundation under it. You hang on to it for a moment but it's fleeting. It passes away. It's like holding sand or water. It just falls away. I'm not what I should be is the honest assessment. The new birth God says I'm going to make you what you were meant to be. I'm going to wash you clean. Clean slate, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your shame is gone. As Jamie taught the the, the young kids, you know, your records wiped clean. That's what happens. I'm going to put my spirit within you. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that the old nature just goes away. Because as the rest of the New Testament testifies, there's the, there's the spirit that God puts within the believer that wages war against the old self, and that's a battle until Christ comes back or until you die. And so there's a battle there. And so if you specifically, uh, 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 younger folks, if you, if you look at it and go, well, I've just got to reach this particular level of, of faith, and there's no sin. That's not the case. The question is of your affections. Do you love the things that God loves? Do you love Christ for what he's done? And do you see that beginning to permeate you in your life? Or is Jesus just kind of an attachment? Something you do on Sunday mornings. Maybe read your Bible once in a while. But your affections haven't changed. That's the question. Number six, and the last one. Because true repentance must have God as its craftsman. Because true repentance must have God as its craftsman. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth, notice the parallel between, verse 20 and 21, Jesus says whoever does evil hates the light. In 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 verse 21, he doesn't say whoever does good. He says whoever practices the truth, the truth being "I'm, I'm unclean. I need to come to Christ for repentance. I've been bitten by sin and I need to look upon him to have life. It says, whoever practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. True repentance must have God as its craftsman. Repentance isn't just making making better choices from a list of possible options. It's coming to God and resting upon Him and saying, God, you must do this work in me to change my heart because I have these affections for things that I, I see and acknowledge that they're not honoring to you. And my, my body wants to go in that, that way to indulge in these things. In, in order to do anything that's honorable for you, you've got to change my heart so that when I, when I repent... When I do those things, I don't boast in myself. I, can lo- I look and say, you're the craftsman of these deeds because deeds are important. But they're not the basis of our salvation. They're the fruit of it. True repentance must have God as its craftsman, as its source. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When they took the fruit, knowledge of good and evil. Right? Th- that was the, I want to be the source of, Of determining right and wrong. That happened, and they weren't made for that. They weren't fashioned for that, and the rest is history. Everything fell apart. God in the new birth brings us back to Him as the source of what is good, so that He gets the glory in anything we do that is good. So, last thing what's the application here? It's one thing look upon Jesus. (laughs) This <laughs> is the exhortation, right? says so Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You must look upon the risen Son of God, one who was lifted up in order to have eternal life, in order to see the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, have you looked upon Jesus, and are you looking upon him? This isn't just, well, oh, I looked at him then, and I'm good. Are you continuing to look to him? Are you... Are you continuing to absorb the preached word, the written word, the testimony, coming to it and and God changing your affections for the things that He loves, saying, Lord, I want more of you. I want more of you. Show me more of your ways. Be a light into my path. Not for my glory, but for yours. Are you looking to Jesus? Let me ask you when you talk to others, maybe you're struggling with sin. Are you helping them look to Jesus? Are you helping them to modify behavior? Oftentimes, it's the encouragement is to modify behavior or to simply just lick wounds, whether they're a Christian or not, rather than to see and hear the bite of sin and see it and say, you, you need to go to the risen Savior. You need to... Jesus was made sin and hung on a cross. Go look. Moses didn't... Tell the people in Israel, well, just, you know, go tend to each other's wounds. If you see somebody who's bitten, send them to the snake. If you see somebody that the Lord puts in your life, are you seeing, sending them the one who became sin? It's the only way they're going to get healed. It's the only way sin's going to be dealt with. Are you looking upon Jesus? Are you pointing others to look upon Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, so much is here, so much is here that we could spend weeks on. I pray that I've been faithful to um to the to the overall broad path of your word. Pray that Jesus has been exalted and in the preaching of your word, Father. It's a phenomenal task and responsibility. As I read Your Word and I see my own life, I see so so much how how the poison of sin goes through me and how I need the Gospel daily. My life pales in comparison to reflecting how much You are worth. Help me to see that. Help me to identify sins and call them what they are and to trust in You that You're better that following you, giving up of myself for the holy good of others is better than treasuring my own idols. Do that within all of us, Father. Pray that you would open blind eyes to see Jesus lifted up, that you would cause the phenomenal and and radical work of new birth in young and old alike. And Father, that we would see the gospel clearly enough to point others to Jesus. That at the end of our lives and at the end of perhaps relationships of people you put in our lives for a season, we can say we pointed them to Jesus. Pointed them as clearly as we could to Christ. Father, may we see the gospel as infinitely valuable. May we live in lockstep with the new birth that we claim. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen.